could say that Lieutenant Howard Bass Cushing had a lot to live up to. Born in 1838 in Wisconsin, he was one of four brothers who would go on to serve in the Civil War. One of his brothers gained renown for defeating a Confederate ironclad ship, while another died while defending his position at the Battle of Gettysburg. Howard, however, took a position in the artillery, but was never where the main action was, so he could never emulate his brother's heroics. And then, after the war, he was court-martialed and suspended from the army for a year thanks to indulging in an excess of liquor. So, by the time that Cushing came out west in the late 1860s, he was trying to both rebrand himself and live up to his family standards. This combination turned him into a relentless Apache fighter, renowned for his bold offensives, which netted him a string of victories across New Mexico. Starting in 1870, Cushing was stationed at Camp Grant in Arizona, and eventually given a special detail to roam the San Pedro Valley and do what he did best, skirmish with the Apache. Lieutenant, later Captain, John G. Burke, who would become quite the celebrated writer, said that Cushing was, quote, the bravest man I ever saw, end quote. And that's why, in the spring of 1871, the eager young lieutenant was given a special commission, hunting down none other than Cochise himself. The few accounts I've read describe him as overeager, if not obsessed, with the idea of nabbing this greatest of all Apache adversaries. What better way could he have to one-up anything his brothers had done? Cushing set out on April 26th, just a couple days before the Camp Grant massacre which we covered last week, heading toward the Whetstone Mountains with a small party, where he had heard of Apaches making camp. When he got there, he didn't find a rancheria, but there were signs of a good number of Apache close by and which way they had gone. Whether overconfident from his past encounters, or overeager to be the man who finally brought Cochise to justice, or maybe both, Cushing declined to head to nearby Camp Crittenden for rest, resupply, and reinforcements. Instead, he chose to follow the trail, telling one man, quote, I have been hunting Cochise and his cutthroats. I have found them, and I will never let up until I have taken his camp and killed the whole outfit, end quote. Cushing pushed on into the Whetstone Mountains with 20 men, where, on May 5th, his party was ambushed, and he was felled by an arrow through the chest. It was an inglorious ending for a man obsessed with chasing glory. But the ultimate irony? He wasn't on the trail of Cochise at all. Instead, he had walked into a carefully set trap laid by one warrior named either Jew or Woe, and another whom the Mexicans knew as Geronimo. News of the gallant young officer's death spread, and it just seemed to reaffirm that the army was helpless to stop the great scourge that was the Apache. Little did the incensed populace know that the man who would eventually change all that was just a mere month away from making his debut in the territory. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Episode 63, Crook, Cochise, Collier. 
Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we left off with the Camp Grant Massacre and the slaughter of more than 100 Aravipa Apache by the Odom and citizens of Tucson. I know that at the end of the last episode, I promised that we would turn our attention again to politics, but during my reading and writing this week, I decided to call an audible. Because so much of what's about to happen in the Apache Wars stems directly from what we've been covering the past couple weeks. Cochise and his peace feelers, the Camp Grand Massacre, I didn't want to break up the flow of the narrative. I do eventually want to backtrack and talk more about the governorship of Anson P.K. Safford and his education initiatives, but that will have to wait. For now, we need to keep following the thread of how the Army and the U.S. government responded to the Apache problem. In the aftermath of the Camp Grant Massacre, there were two supremely hated figures in Arizona. Colonel George Stoneman, who seemingly wouldn't lift a finger, and Lieutenant Royal Whitman, the head of Camp Grant, who wrote a defense of the Apache living there in the wake of the attack. Fortunately for the populace of places like Tucson, they didn't have to deal with either for that much longer. Governor Safford had made a trip to Washington, D.C. immediately after the massacre, and with the help of Richard C. McCormick, the former governor and now the territory's delegate to Congress, they managed to have Stoneman sacked. In his place, Safford was able to persuade President Ulysses S. Grant to name Lieutenant Colonel George R. Crook as the head of the military department of Arizona. Okay, you're going to want to take note of that name, because Crook is one of those people who definitely will be on the test at the end. Crook had been born in Taylorsville, Ohio in 1828. As a young man, he secured a place in West Point, eventually graduating in 1852. Between graduation and the beginning of the Civil War, he would serve in Northern California and Oregon, where he would quickly gain experience fighting Amerindians while also garnering a reputation for learning Native methods and languages. Indeed, one reporter would write, quote, Indian hunting is Crook's speciality. The fact is Crook is nothing but an Indian anyway. His mind, physiognomy, and education are all Indian, end quote. During the Civil War, he headed back east, where he served with distinction, popping up at the Battle of Antietam and during the Shenandoah Campaign. He would also strike up a friendship with a subordinate named Rutherford B. Hayes, who, you might know, would one day wind up in the Oval Office. Crook carried the rank of Brevet Major General during the war, but afterward he reverted to his regular rank of Major, before being made Lieutenant Colonel and sent to fight Amerindians again in Oregon. According to his autobiography, when he learned of his new assignment to Arizona, Crook's initial reaction was to turn it down, because he was tired of fighting Indians and he didn't like the territory's climate. The story goes that he told the same thing to Governor Safford when the latter visited Crook in San Francisco before he headed to Washington, D.C. And Safford is said to have promised not to press the issue. But as soon as he was in front of President Grant, the governor strongly suggested having Crook in command of Arizona. The president agreed, despite the objections of General William Tecumseh Sherman and Grant's own Secretary of War, who both wanted a more senior officer in the position. In his book, The Apache Wars, historian Paul Andrew Hutton says that while most people paint Crook's initial refusal as humility, it's probably more accurate to say that Crook was simply more subtle in his ambitions 
than, say, his contemporary and rival, George Armstrong Custer. That means he was also a lot less attention-seeking while still getting the job done. All that I require, he would write to his commanding officer in the Division of the Pacific about his new assignment, is a few more horses and to be left alone. In late June 1871, Crook arrived in Tucson. Almost immediately, he sided with the aggrieved citizens of the city in the issue of the Camp Grant Massacre. He also developed quite the distaste for Whitman, who he said, quote, had deserted his colors and gone over to the Indian ring, bag and baggage, end quote. Crook met with William S. Owry, Governor Safford, and others to discuss the matter and what needed to be done. The then-Lieutenant Colonel, he wouldn't be made a general until 1873, ordered all officers in the southern part of Arizona to report directly to him immediately. These he questioned intently, learning everything he could about the land, the climate, the white settlers, the Apaches, and anything else he could think of. And this is the difference between Crook and many of his fellow officers. He was not a rash man. If he was tasked with making water flow uphill, he was darn sure going to figure out how to do it first, instead of just wading out into the river. From all these interviews, Crook walked away with several definite objectives in mind. First, he was convinced the Apache had to be beaten on their home turf before any sort of accommodations or peace could be made. Secondly, he started recruiting Hispanic men, whose families had lived in the area for generations and knew what it was to constantly fight the Apache, and began floating the idea of using scouts from different Apache bands to hunt down their belligerent kinsmen. Third, he knew his first priority had to be hunting down Cochise. Since leaving the Cañada Alamosa Reservation in December 1870, Cochise had been wintering in the Chiricahuas. And because he was not on a reservation, he felt no strong compunctions against his band's warriors heading out to continue raiding in the spring of 1871. Fierce skirmishes continued, and at least at one point, someone speculated that Cochise had actually been killed— but he hadn't and continued to be constantly on the move to avoid American troops. At the same time, reservation officials tried to improve the rations they could provide to be a sufficient lure for the aggressive Apaches like Cochise to come in. They also desperately wanted Cochise to head back east and meet with the Great White Father in Washington, D.C., something they will keep pushing for the next year, but which Cochise always rejected. He was probably in the Huachuca or Whetstone Mountains when he learned of the Camp Grant Massacre. Afterward, he slipped down into Mexico in revenge for some recent campaigns by the Chihuahuans, where Cochise was said to have been wounded. When he returned to Arizona, he found that the Indian agent at Cañada Alamosa had actually gotten a message to his people about coming into the reservation again. Many Chaconans had taken up this offer, but Cochise's family and others refused to do so until after he had returned. And once news reached the Americans that A, Cochise was back in the country, and B, he was wounded and therefore may be willing to consider settling down again, they sent out another round of feelers. Despite sending in his friend Tom Jeffords to talk with him, Cochise still refused to come in, saying maybe he would do so, 
but only if the troops were removed from his people's territory. Jefford's opinion was that Cochise was very wary of Americans thanks to the Camp Grant massacre, and no assurance he could give could convince the chief that now would be a good time to hand himself over to those same Americans. So, in the summer of 1871, Cochise was deliberately laying low and avoiding all contact with the American military, while still on the lookout for just the right opportunity to settle down peacefully. This is the mood he was in when Crook marched from Tucson on July 11th with more than 200 men looking for a fight. What this actually turned into was a giant counterclockwise circle of Arizona because, as I just said, Cochise was not out and about. Crook reached Fort Bowie a few days into his march, having spent the time learning more about the terrain, weather, and conditions firsthand, and conditioning his men as to what they should expect from their new commanding officer. Once at Bowie, he learned about raiding that had killed a mail rider recently. Thinking it was Cochise's doing, because remember, nearly everything gets blamed on Cochise, Crook left Bowie on July 17th, heading north. That's right, north. The complete opposite direction of where his prey actually was. What Crook did find was more Apache bands north of the Gila River. These he parlayed with and started feeling out his idea to use Apache scouts in his task. On August 12, 1871, so roughly a month since setting out from Tucson, Crook and his men arrived at Fort Apache and began to actively recruit from the White Mountain Band. Now, the use of Amerindian scouts was nothing new to the Army in general, and Crook in particular. However, for a variety of reasons, both cultural and practical, the Odom had never been universally embraced as scouts. Hispanic scouts were also dismissed by Crook because of their tendency to attack warrior and civilian alike, because they wanted to collect scalps for bounties. But the Apaches? The Apaches knew the land, knew their opponent, and knew how to fight them. Within weeks, they would prove their worth across several engagements. Crook may not have been the first one to use Apache scouts, but he was the first to really systematize their use and set them loose against all the Apache who simply refused to get with the program. The main thrust of his scout recruitment will not happen until Crook's famous winter campaign of 1872-73, but the initial foundation was laid here. A few days after stopping at Fort Apache, Crook set out again, this time heading toward Camp Verde along what is still known today as General Crook Trail, and in places at least, follows roughly modern State Route 260. He traveled mainly along the Mogollon Rim, where he would encounter one of the summer thunderstorms that still inspire awe in Arizona residents to this day. Also, at some point, Crook and his men were ambushed by a group of Tonto Apache in the pines of the high country, and Crook came within inches of being the latest army officer victim of the Apache. Instead, though, he made it safely to Camp Verde. Crook was definitely pleased with the expedition so far, and had been looking forward to a vigorous winter campaign against the Apache. However, all his plans were upended when he had pulled into Fort Apache back in August. Because there, Crook found new orders waiting for him. Simply put, 
he was to suspend all military operations because President Grant had sent a peace commissioner to Arizona to look into the Apache question, especially because of the Camp Grant massacre, which, remember, is just a few months old. Grant's choice was Vincent Collier, a Quaker humanitarian and a member of the Board of Indian Affairs that had been set up in 1869. Collier was given presidential authority, meaning he could overrule even the most senior of military officials, cough, cough, crook, cough, cough, and brought with him $70,000 to bolster up the reservation system. To put it bluntly, there was no way Collier was ever going to be well-received in Arizona. To everyone in the territory, he would be, at best, a naive, starry-eyed dreamer who had no idea how life worked out in the real world. Though Governor Safford diplomatically asked for people to give the peace commissioner a chance, secretly he agreed with the press, which called Collier a, quote, old philanthropic humbug, end quote, and also a, quote, cold-blooded scoundrel and a red-handed assassin, end quote. That last is from the Arizona Minor newspaper, whose editor also would write that Arizonans should, quote, dump the old devil into the shaft of some mine and pile rocks upon him until he is dead, end quote. Meanwhile, Crook fumed at Collier's appointment and sarcastically wrote, quote, I discovered from the newspaper that a Mr. Vincent Collier had been sent by the Indian ring to interfere with my operations, and that he was going to the Apache from New Mexico and was going to make peace with the Apaches by the grace of God. End quote. And for his part, Collier did himself no favors. He firmly believed, and was not afraid to publicize his belief, that the Apache were wholly innocent and would have been friendly and non-aggressive if it hadn't been for the white hostility and encroachment. Is it not a shame, he wrote, that a few lawless white men can thus be allowed to overturn all the good work of the government and risk the bringing about of a costly war? End quote. In Collier's mind, the criticism against him was merely the product of the press and all those who benefited from the fighting, army contractors, traders, and the proprietors of barrooms and gambling houses. If you went to the regular Joe on the street, they all wanted peace, Collier thought. And it's true that they did, just in the opposite way he thought. He would not be the first, nor the last person, to blame the press for warping public opinion, only to find them just the mouthpiece for it. In just another example of how out of touch he was, Collier even resented Safford's proclamation asking people to be tolerant and peaceful of him, seeing it as completely unnecessary. It should come as no surprise that the Quaker had to be escorted around by a military escort. And just let that irony sink in for a second. Before even entering Arizona, Collier stopped at Cañada Alamosa, New Mexico in mid-August, where he would formally create a reservation before heading into Arizona. However, he wasn't sure about the Apache's security there and started thinking about removing their reservation to the Tularosa Valley, east of the Rio Grande. Mark that down, because the decision whether or not to remove to Tularosa will be the next major bone of contention with Cochise. With the Cañada Alamosa Reservation now on firm footing, and another for the Mescalero Apache created at Fort Stanton, 
Collier then passed into Arizona. On September 2, 1871, he reached Fort Apache, which he declared to be the seat of yet another reservation for the White Mountain Apache. Here, he was also jubilant that Crook had countermanded his own order to recruit Apache scouts. Collier thought it was because Crook had finally seen the light, while in reality it's because Crook's hands were tied while Collier was in the territory on his mission. Moving on, the Quaker next made it to Camp Grant. Ahead of his arrival, he had already telegraphed that another reservation for the Pinal and Aravipa Apache should be set up at the camp, thus vindicating Whitman's actions from earlier that year. In fact, Whitman was named as agent for the reservation. I'm not entirely sure how they got around the 1870 prohibition of army officers being Indian agents, but it happened all the same. Right after Collier's arrival on September 13th, a group of 60 heavily armed Tucson citizens approached the camp to have a nice little chat with the annoying Quaker. Whitman immediately called out his cavalry detachment to turn this group back, which made the lieutenant even more unpopular with everyone, especially Crook. At Camp Grant, Collier met with Eskimizen and was able to charm the chief, despite the latter having literally killed a friend to show his people that you couldn't trust the Americans at all. Eskimizen would write that Collier, quote, could not come of mortal parents, for no man so good as he could have been so born, end quote. Part of what may have won him over was Collier's instructions to the Indian agent over the Papagos to investigate the fate of the 30 Apache children who'd been taken during the Camp Grant massacre and see about returning them to the Aravaipa. After Camp Grant, Collier moved to Camp Verde, where he met with the Yavapai and, yep, you guessed it, established a reservation for them. Here, though, we find his naivete again, as he suggested that the Yavapai be given guns and ammunition so they could sustain themselves by hunting. You can imagine how the people of Arizona felt about that suggestion. Next, he moved to Fort Whipple near Prescott, where he actually sat down with Crook. The meeting was cordial, and Collier believed that Crook's good manners were a sign that they shared a similar agenda. Self-delusion seems to have been one of his strong suits. After establishing another reservation at Date Creek for the Yavapais and Bill Springs for the Wallapai, Collier left Arizona for California in early October 1871, feeling that, just a mere six months from the Camp Grant massacre, he had solved all of Arizona's Apache problems. Nearly everyone breathed a sigh of relief that he was gone. But though cursed by Crook and the military as a whole, many authors and historians point out that they actually owed the unpopular Quaker some thanks. By establishing six reservations in Arizona, it helped define the Army's mission. Everyone inside those boundaries was where they should be. Everyone else had to be put there. Now, there were firm goalposts with which they could keep score. Because Crook and Coyer came from diametrically opposed viewpoints when it came to the Apache and their policies, I tend to side with Captain James T. Kirk on this one. Reality was probably somewhere between the two of them. Coyer wasn't wrong about the Apaches being stirred up by American aggression. 
After all, weren't Americans even now trying to settle in what the Spaniards, themselves invaders, had dubbed the Apacheria? But Crook was also right. For the current conditions, despite everything that had taken place in the past, the Apache had to be militarily whipped before they would even talk about peace. As long as they could attack and run off horses, they had no reason to stop raiding. The only problem is that both policies could not be applied simultaneously. As the New York Tribune summed it up, quote, It stands to reason that Mr. Collier and his peace agents have no business looking after Apaches while Crook and his fighters are hunting them. Either give up the Indians to General Crook or give up Collier to the Indians. End quote. But it turns out, Crook hadn't needed to worry about Collier for long. His undoing had already started before he set foot in Arizona. You see, Collier and others on the Board of Indian Affairs had clashed with Eli S. Parker, Grant's Commissioner of Indian Affairs. Basically, the problem was an ideological one about how to deal with the Amerindians, and Parker, a member of the Seneca tribe, found the board's ideas paternalistic, condescending, and a little bit racist. So the board members, including Collier, started working to oust him. In June 1871, Parker resigned his position in disgust. His opponents celebrated, but soon realized they had made a big mistake. Remember that Parker had been Grant's aide-de-camp during the Civil War, so their bond was pretty strong. And did I happen to mention that Grant had served as best man at Parker's wedding? No? Well, he did. And the wedding was something of a controversial affair as Parker married a white woman. Grant stood by his side then, and was certainly not going to stop now. So soon it was Collier finding himself being forced to resign by the angry president. Upon receiving this news, Crook wrote jubilantly to his friend Rutherford B. Hayes over the, quote, decapitation of Vincent the Good, end quote. As you might expect, Crook took this as a sign that he could gear up to do the job assigned to him again. Indeed, he received word in November 1871 that General Sherman had written his superiors saying that, quote, after general notice to Indians and whites of this policy, General Crook may feel assured that whatever measure of severity he may adopt to reduce those Apaches to a peaceful and subordinate condition will be approved by the War Department and the President. End quote. With this news, word immediately went out to all the Apache bands that they had to report to their respective reservations, so helpfully drawn out by Collier, by February 15, 1872. Every band that failed to do so would be branded as hostile and, well, you can imagine the rest. And while being forced to sit on his hands, Crook had not been idle. He had taken the opportunity to review everything he had learned in his large circular march from Tucson to Prescott, while also training the troops underneath him. Word went out to again recruit Apache scouts to help track down those who failed to show up in time for the February 15th deadline. Come the spring, Crook was more than ready to head out, especially to take on a band of Yavapai, for what was believed to be their role in what has come to be known as the Wickenburg Massacre, something we'll get into in a future episode. With all that in mind, 
I want you to picture in your head how much Crook must have yelled in frustration when word reached him in early 1872 that he had to suspend operations yet again. It seems that President Grant had vacillated back to trying to make peace with the Apache, so he was sending yet another peace commissioner to Arizona. So it was in the early spring of 1872 that Crook could only wait with gritted teeth for this new delegation. And that's where we're going to leave things this week, as everyone in Arizona is muttering under their breath about yet another wide-eyed Easterner coming to tell them how to deal with their problems. What they ended up getting, though, was something unexpected. A decorated military officer who embodied both practicality and humanitarianism, but definitely with his own quirks. He was also the man who would go down in history as actually, finally, making a peace with Cochise himself, Brigadier General Oliver Otis Howard, the so-called Christian General. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.